this lecture tonight very deliberately eliminates detail about the nature of the abuse of, that's been alleged or found in relation to the cases I talk about. Equally, I've undertaken a red line exercise in the lecture notes that you'll find after I have spoken. And that is there for a very good reason, not because the content is not important, but because it's not part of my role to cause further harm to any children um, as a course of this lecture. So first risk um, assessment undertaken, I hope. Um, a second is this. That's an image of an unknown child. And as you will shortly come to discover, we only understand a tip of what can happen to children within our society. The fact that we are now talking about the issue is, I think, one of the great improvements over the last decade plus, because sex abuse isn't a modern phenomena. It's just that now we are prepared to acknowledge it and investigate it. What do we think about when sex abuse is mentioned within the papers? I'm going to give you some examples literally from the just week, last week. Rotherham, the most appalling endemic level of sex abuse that we have come across in recent years. In recent uh, weeks, the national crime statistics say that over 1,510 children were affected by a systematic uh, process of child abuse. And I've chosen this picture deliberately because it's not one you necessarily see in the papers. You would have seen in the papers for very, very many months and years simply a face of uh, an image of black faces. And I've chosen this one just to remind you that there is no defining feature in terms of those who abuse. They can be black, they can be white, they can be male, they can be female. In this instance, this picture is here because these two women were convicted of facilitating the abuse by the men. In other cases I've dealt with, women are the abusers themselves. So this very image is simply designed to show you that there is no single face of an abuser. Second example, Barry Bunnell. Um, as you'll know, this is a man who was placed in a position of trust and privilege because he had the opportunity of taking in students who were desperate to be footballers. And with that aura of glamour and power that he had, he systematically abused all the children that came within his charge. The parents would have entrusted their children to him. They would have had no idea what experiences those children would have gone through. And the question mark is how he was allowed to get away with it for so long. But again, a respected man in society, respected within football clubs, abuse undetected. And then Matthew Fowder, just a few days ago. Described here, as you see, as one of Britain's most prolific paedophiles, now jailed for 32 years. The one detail I will give you about his offences, that is that which has been in the paper, so therefore it will not be new to you, which is that part of his acts were abusing children through the web, blackmailing them, manipulating them, grooming them, so they ended up performing acts that they would never, ever have thought of doing. One of the acts for which he was ultimately convicted was persuading, conjoling, threatening a teenager to rape a four-year-old boy. So when you think about sex abuse... My very first warning to you is do not think that there is a fine line between a victim and an abuser, because that child that raped another was a victim of themselves, had been abused by this man, and so you have to think whenever you hear a story, what's the beginning point and what's the end point? How much of the story do you know? So these three examples really just to show you what in the space of the last 10 days we have had to deal with as a society. And the reason I'm talking to you just about them for the moment is because their names and their faces are in the public domain because they were convicted through the criminal justice process where anonymity for the uh, defendant um, is not something or the child is not something that has the same priorities it does in children's cases where when a child is involved we hold their anonymity very close to our hearts. So the one example I can give you, I think, about what happens in a family court where a child has become the subject of proceedings because there are surviving children that need protection is this little girl. No, not that one. Poppy Worthington. Now, you will remember from my previous lectures the story I gave, I think, effectively, A Tale of Two Cities, I think, was the title, where I was using this example of Poppy to show you how different jurisdictions can come to different conclusions based on different information, but where in relation to Poppy, we had an example where Mr Justice Peter Jackson 
um, came to a decision during the family court proceedings that she had been abused by her father. Poppy's face is here before you to remind you that there is no youngest age at which you can be abused. The findings of the coroner's court this week found that she'd sustained injuries caused by anal penetration. She was just 13 months. So think and think and think some more about what it is that leads that situation to occur. And of course, I did call this man up because he is an example of someone who the position of power and influence and fame was able to abuse for decades. Children who had no opportunity to say no and where his abuse was allowed to go unchecked. So that shows you the scale of the problem. I just want to say that right at the beginning because this isn't news to you and it should form the backdrop of that which I'm about to go through and explain. So hello and farewell to Poppy and on to what we mean in some ways by sex abuse. So it can be by friend to family. Family can be entirely innocent of what's gone on, but there is someone who has decided, targeted them to approach them. Often happens when there are vulnerable single uh, women parents. It can be intergenerational, so that means it can be from grandfather to grandson, grandfather to father, and, like I say, don't think that the gender of the abuser comes into it. I've dealt with cases where the mother has been the abuser as well as the procurer. It can be for financial gain. It can be for pleasure. It can be a one-off act. I've dealt with cases where there's been endemic abuse within a family and a child has come back to come and have tea just from nursery or from school and they have been abused on that one encounter just because they came back from tea. It can also be premeditated. It can be predatory. It can be groomed. There is no one single way in which you can describe it. It can be progressive and persistent over a period of time. It can be something that happens in a particular phase of a child or an adult's life. It can be covert. It can happen in the house when no one else is around. Or it can be public because the acts are promulgated through the internet. It can comprise of more than one person in the room. It can comprise of people paying to come into the room. The most significant I think we've had to deal with over the course of the time I've done this work is that the act of abuse can outlive the victim and the abuser. In a case I did last year, which involved the rape of a baby, there were issues of identity because on the web, images were surfing of a child that looked very much like the one that we were considering. And the question was, was that the child the subject of the proceedings? And through the exhaustive and exceptional work of the detection squads that work within our dedicated police forces, they were able, by facial analysis, to say, no, it wasn't. In fact, it's an image that's been circulating on the web for the past decade. And that's what the police officers, that's what the child protection system, that's what the family division has to deal with. So that gives you a range of the type of things we are considering. And if I try, as I did, to try to identify one theme that I think links these, it is this. Child abuse is an abuse of power because there is no one more vulnerable in our society than the child. And when that child needs protection and doesn't receive it, it can be exploited by those who have no shame and no apparent willingness to consider that the child has a right to grow up free from abuse in order to live its life to its full potential. Not telling is not, a, is not an indication of guilt. It's often associated with the shame of being a victim that increases as the child becomes more conscious of what has happened. So, what do I intend to cover in this lecture? And I'm impressed you're still here. If anyone wants to leave now, then please do. I intended to start off with a head note of what was to follow because it is tough. And there is no reason for you to stay in this room or to carry on watching unless you genuinely want to learn. All right, no movement for the exit. So I'll carry on. So issues for this lecture. What do we mean, and I'm talking we in terms of the family justice system when we talk about sexual abuse. How can it come to light? That's going to be taking you through the process of allegation. 
practice and procedure, what do we do when we have concerns that a child may be abused and emphasise the word may be, not has? The only judgment that counts in these situations is that of the jury in the criminal court or the judge. It's no one else's right to prejudge an outcome of an investigation. The damage that can be done by a flawed investigation, for reasons that I'll explain, and then finally the impact of getting it wrong, because I say at the, at the end of this lecture, if there is an investigation which goes wrong and the judge comes to a conclusion that the child has not been abused but in fact is wrong, then that child is exposed to further harm throughout their life. If, on the other hand, he finds that the child has been abused by, an, by a perpetrator and he's wrong in that decision, that person is tarred not only for the rest of the life, but it positively affects any prospect they have of being able to raise a family without concern, suspicion, or removal. So the responsibility of the court is huge to get it right, and that's exactly what this letter is designed to show you, the efforts that we go to to try to make the least mistakes we can in an imperfect world. So I'm going to start really, I think, with a definition, because I can think of no other, um, of what sexual abuse might mean, and that takes us back to the seminal work that was the Cleveland Inquiry um, of 1987, as reflected in the report of 1988. And this is a definition which I think might help. Sexual abuse is defined as the involvement of dependent developmentally immature children and adolescents in sexual activities they do not fully comprehend and to which they are unable to give informed consent or that violates the sexual taboos of family roles. And you can break that down. A child, immature child or adolescent, if you think about how long it took the Rotherham victims to be believed and listened to because they were 16, 17, came from troubled homes or were in care, or because they were 17 and acting older, or because they were 17 and they'd been on the streets, that's not a reason to think that there is consent because what's happening there, it comes back to the abuse of PowerPoint. They don't fully comprehend and they can't consent. They're under 18. Or they violate the sexual taboos of the family rules. Really important. There are reasons why it takes a lot to persuade someone that a child has been harmed by a mother or by a father. And that's because we just don't do it. Because we are born and bred, we believe, to look after the young, not to abuse them. And that is why it is a massive social taboo, and that's also why for so long it has gone unheard. How does that fit within our legal definition of what harm is comprised? And you'll know by now, to anyone that's listened to these lectures, that I'm a public law specialist. That means I deal in cases that involve the state on the one side, bringing an action against the child as a subject, as a party, against the parent who is represented. So I deal in cases not whether it's an argument between a divorcing couple or a divided family. That's private law. I specialize in public law. State, the public body, against the individual, the family. And the Children Act guides and encourages us to follow through our analysis in both of those fields, but I'm going to use this to talk you through what we do in the public law sphere. So we go to section 31. Again, any of you that have listened to any of these lectures before will have the analysis I did in my foundation year where I told you what section 31 is. Remember, it's the threshold over which the state has to pass in order to demonstrate why they're entitled to interfere in a family's private life. And to do that, they have to satisfy the court that the child is suffering from harm, and not just any old harm, but significant harm. And because we as lawyers always like to be told exactly what these words mean, we have that definition in this Act. So harm means ill treatment or impairment of health or development, including, for example, suffering from seeing or hearing the ill treatment, Ill treatment of another. So think about that. That might mean a child that's forced to watch another member of the family been abused. It might mean a child that's forced to watch porn as a prelude to being abused themselves. This definition has been drafted with such a degree of foresight that every time I look at it, I'm surprised by how much assistance it gives us because it was so far-sighted. Development means physical, intellectual, emotional, social, or behavioral development. And if you think about what child abuse does, it's messing with the child's mind, not just their body. 
It's abusing their trust. It's given them a warped sense about what it means to be close to someone. It's given them a warped sense about what it means to be held or touched. And if no other definition covers that, then that certainly would, because it is, it is stopping their development, their emotional development, at a point when it should be learning to explore the world safely, not stunting it at a point where it no longer knows what's right or wrong or who to trust or not. Health, physical or mental health. I'll come on to the question of medical examination later, but you can anticipate what might happen in the course of um, sexual abuse. And then ill treatment. Includes sexual abuse and forms of ill treatment which are not physical. So it would include, for example, a parent, I think, who doesn't directly abuse the child but positively encourages or facilitates or even knows and turns away from the fact that that child is being harmed. The Children's Act is a wonderful piece of legislation, and this, this, I think, goes to show why. And why do we have it? We have the children out there for a very good reason, and that's because the family jurisdiction, unlike the criminal jurisdiction, only looks to the past to inform the future. Think of what a criminal court does. A criminal court is examining the past in order to determine whether or not a defendant is guilty or innocent. It's not interested in the future, save unless there's something that's needed, for example, a sentence. The family jurisdiction is only involved in cases concerning a child when there is a child who is the subject of the proceedings. So, for example, if there is a family where a child dies with a suspicion that the child has been assaulted leading to that death, then that matter may well go to the criminal court, but it won't come to the family court unless there is a surviving child that needs protection through the examination of those facts. So the family court looks to the past to decide what may, may or may not have happened in order to inform decisions for the child's future. And I put that one up there deliberately, just again to remind you that, that what happens in these cases casts a, a shadow over that child's future. There is no easy outcome. Um, so, to the process, what do we do? How sexual abuse and exploitation can come to light. It doesn't immediately come to the door of the police officers or to the social services. It's normally something that occurs with um, an allegation made in private, maybe to a family member, or even to a school friend, or maybe to a teacher. And so there is a process of acquiring information which becomes critically important in the family court. And what's critical to hold on to is what the first allegation is. What is said, in what way, with what words, to who. And once you start moving beyond that, and you're talking about what the person hearing it has received, that's when the first Nina Nina danger signs come up, because that's when you need to know exactly how much has been understood by what the child has been saying as opposed to what the child has actually said. And I'll come on to that in a moment. Whatever is said at the beginning, it will inevitably, one hopes, unless it's a matter of where the family closes down or the school doesn't know what to do or the child doesn't know what to do, comes to the attention of the authorities and therefore one will be looking to see what happens in terms of a police investigation, what happens in terms of a social services investigation, and, no, don't, that's fine. Thank you for coming. And um, what follows from there in terms of a formal examination uh, process through video recorded interview, possibly a medical examination, and then towards the end of the train, expert evidence, potentially. So there's a whole raft of evidence that come, come towards the family court. And the court will always look at what's called the broad canvas. Again, go back to the foundation lectures. You'll realise that what the family jurisdiction does, through its ability to look at hearsay evidence, so not simply first source material, it's got a much greater freedom than the criminal jurisdiction has to look at evidence that comes from a whole raft of um, parts of the child's life. And that's so it can form a very strong picture about what was going on at the child's life at the point this allegation came to light and at the time the court is being asked to make decisions. This. This is the warning I'm going to give to you at regular parts throughout this, le this lecture. Because it's what the child says, or does, or draws, or behaves that's important. 
not the way the person who sees the action writes down the words, thinks they have said, and thinks they have reacted. Because as soon as that child has said something that causes a concern, immediately there is a danger that, that what the child is actually recorded as saying comes through the filter of the person that has heard it. And the more filters there are, the more distorted the image gets, and the harder it is to get back to the reality of what the child has said. Come back to one of the uh, seminal movers within the family justice system. But the Sloss, she'll forgive me for using that word, she's become known by her initials because her cases are on so many cases that you just summarise it to being another BS case. But let's go back to her work in the Cleveland Inquiry. And what she did back in 1987 was asked to investigate what had been a massive rise in reported child abuse cases in Cleveland. And she produced her report in 1988. And effectively, what she identified was serious flaws, both in training, knowledge of available training, the application of the training, coordination, the use and overuse of medical diagnosis, failures to communicate with the parents about what rights they have, with the outcome and effect that of a number of children who were referred through um, this particular doctor to social services and to the police as being thought to be suspect to child abuse, most of the children were returned when the allegations could not be proven or were found not to be established. And that's because of the serious failures in the way in which the police and social services, and indeed the courts, um, proceeded once the suspicion of abuse was being raised by Dr. Higgs. The report is immense, and it is a seminal work for anyone that's seriously interested in this business, and it's for good reason that the Cleveland Report is still referred to as, an, a, a, as a landmark case that identified exactly what was required in terms of investigations, even now in the Court of Appeal, and the judgments I'll refer to you in a few minutes. But the issues that are important here are disclosure work, that term, disclosure, nina, nina, nina word. Disclosure implies something has happened, that the child is disclosing to you because it has happened as a matter of fact. Disclosure used by an adult implies there's something underneath what the child has said. It is a dangerous word. It should not be used. You can use the word allegation, or you can use the word as one um, very, very... Um, highly intuitive, bright journalist said, coming to this case afresh, grappling with a subject that lawyers have argued about for years. Why don't you simply say, the child has said? Disclosure, do not use that word. If you hear it by any professional, query how professional they truly are. Therapy should never be offered on the assumption that abuse has taken place. Don't assume that abuse has taken place. Don't assume that lack of uh, disclosure, used again by the wrong people, indicates a sign of denial, and make sure that you conduct interviews and investigations in accordance with good practice. But most of all, the lesson to come from Cleveland, and the lesson that I think permeates those mistakes which still occur today, is that professionals must not assess evidence on the basis that the child must be believed. What they have to do is to listen and to approach with an open mind and to investigate with absolute dedication and forensic detail. But you do not prejudge the judge's decision. So what do we do in a family court um, when this comes to um, our doors? We first of all look to see is there evidence of sex abuse and secondly is there evidence of the identity of the abuser. You do not mix up those stages because if you do you run the risk of prejudging whether an act of abuse or acts of abuse has taken place because you approach it on the basis potentially of propensity or because you already form judgments about the person who's part of that family. So just to give you an example, say you've got a case where a parent has formerly been a victim of child abuse themselves and they have gone on to be a parent... Do not assume that just because they have been victimised as a child, they are going to go on to victimise their own, which is why you have this two-stage process. So what has happened first, and then if it has happened, who, by? Critical distinction. 
What do you need to do if you're looking at these cases? Well, there are reasons um, why we don't reinvent the wheel, and that's because we look at those who are brighter and more able than us, and we pick up their work and we carry it through to the best of our ability. So obviously, we've got the Cleveland report. Um, you've got the ABE evidence in criminal proceedings. That is your cornerstone for approaching any type of analysis of this type of case, because they are easy to read. They are well written in terms of what they're trying to get across, and they still guide what we do now. The most updated version is March 2011. There's pediatric material on it. There's government good guidance, which should be applied, and it's what we look at to see what schools are doing. And then the Advocates Gateway, which is, a, as you gather, I'm a bit of a fan of from previous lectures, the Advocates Gateway guidance gives you um, examples about what to do when children are being interviewed and what not to do. And that gives real-time examples about when mistakes are made. And then lastly, a much more easily available digestible guide, which is what to do if you're worried a child is being abused, what I've put here, because I don't know who's listening to this lecture. But if anyone feels they need to um, pursue any matters I raise separately, then you might want to go to that as well as ringing up the helplines. So judicial framework. There is no room for a finding that something might have happened. By the time the judge has to make a decision, he or she has got the enormous task of deciding did it or didn't it on a 50-50 basis. Remember, we're talking about balance of probabilities here. But once the judge has decided it's 51 and it's happened, that is the basis upon which the family proceeds for the rest of the case and for the rest of the matters concerning the child so far as they involve the state. If it's 49, it did not happen. You cannot have social workers carrying on after a case has concluded where the judges rejected their case and not made findings, still slipping the, the elements of suspicion through the papers. Social workers, as much as parents or families, have to accept the outcome of the court proceedings. And that is why we have a system where it comes to court as opposed to suspicion carrying on in the future and clouding further assessment of the family. But that value of naught and one is what happens at the outcome of the case. Building up to it, we have this jigsaw to put together, which means the court looks at almost every element of this child's lives and the family's lives to try to understand what has gone on. There is no limit to what we look at. And that's part of the broad canvas, and that's what the court can look at individually as facts and collectively in order to come to its final decision. But the hallmark of any good approach to looking at the subject is question, question, question in their minds of the professionals. Do not go out simply looking for evidence to confirm a belief. The local authority through its social workers and the police officers through its force are there to try to identify what has happened in fact, not simply to approach the case from the perspective of it has happened, therefore I'm looking for evidence to reinforce it. That's not the way in which justice is served. So we look to see in our family division um, what may have gone on to explain the child's allegation, not disclosure. When did the child first make the allegation? In what context was it made? How did it evolve? Is it consistent? Is there evidence of rehearsal or coaching? What degree of sexual knowledge does the child have? Just pausing there, do not assume, for example, that if a teenager child says that they have been abused and they have porn on their phone or that they are behaving in a really unsafe way, that that necessarily means either that they are lying about the abuse because obviously they could have acquired this knowledge they do through their own sexual activity. Because if a child has been abused and their boundaries have been so deformed by the lack of protection they have been given and they feel so insecure and they feel the only way they can be valued is through sex, there's good reason for them to have lower boundaries um, within society. doesn't mean to say that's a reason for them to claim that they've been abused wrongly. But on the other hand, you've got to look to say, well, are they describing something that they have seen and didn't happen? Is that an example of where their sexual knowledge could have come out with the allegation? So you've really got to finally balance up those, those um, value judgments because in the end, the judge does make a value judgment about it. What was going on in the child's life when it was said? And this is particularly prevalent when there may be a separation of a family, 
um, when there is resistance from a child going to another parent's home, for example, or where a parent doesn't want the child to go to the other parent's home. What was their emotional state at the time? What response did the child receive? What corroborating evidence is there? I'm going to go on to those in a little bit more detail, but that's really to give you an overview. The investigation, what we do, we look at this. We look to see who has been spoken to when and who more particularly has spoken to the child and when in order to uncover the layers of interference there might be in understanding the child's original account. If the child's been spoken to by a professional, where are the records? I am the local authority's worst nightmare in these cases. I want every shred of paper. I want it scrappy. I don't want it tidied up. I want the notes on the paper. I want the notes on the mobile. I want the notes they've written. I don't want the sanitised, tidied up version where someone's tried to make it neater with the best of intent. It's what the child said in the child's own words that is the most important account. Sexualised behaviour. How relevant is that? You have to be really careful about making judgments about sexualised behaviour. I've just given you an example already. But also because in this case, um, uh, Andrew McFarlane, now in the Court of Appeal, um, had heard this case where Dr. Claire Sturge, a, a very significant paediatrician, gave evidence where she pointed out that sexualised behaviour doesn't necessarily mean that the child has been sexually abused because sexualised behaviour can be a form of self-satisfaction. It can arise through neglect cases. So do not assume that if that's happening in any of the matters that you are dealing with, it necessarily means that the child is behaving that way because they're repeating behaviours. It might be. But remember what I said, it's part of looking at the broad canvas. It's no single one factor that can determine the outcome of the case. What about medical evidence? I thought carefully about what to put up on screen and I thought really carefully about what to put in my notes. And in the end, I think if I didn't put it up there, it would not be doing you the service that you require of being frank with you in these lectures. But equally, what I want to say to you is that it's very rare that there is medical evidence that goes to prove that sexual abuse has taken place for very many reasons, which those who work in the courts will know about. Its presence doesn't prove it's happened, and its absence doesn't prove it hasn't. So it's about context. It's not going to be um, a matter which, um, in most cases, proves the matter um, beyond the requirement to look at other material. Assessing the veracity of the child's allegations, we've talked about language, spontaneity, how much are they able to give through their free recall, what type of detail, corroboration is there, what inconsistency is there, is there consistency in the face of challenge, and all of these areas are going to look at whether or not the child's account is true to the original thing they've said, or whether there's been an overlay of children coming to say things which either they've been told to say or which they believe they should say or which adults believe they have said and which has become the child's belief because children are like sponges. They soak up information, not just verbal information but non-verbal cues. If a child says something indicating abuse has happened and the person talks to them says, oh, you're such a brave girl, tell me more and did this happen? then it's inviting a child to elaborate on an account which may not be theirs to give, because children essentially want to please, and particularly want to please people in power, whether that's power through love, or whether it's power through status, or whether it's power through position, i.e. in a strange interview room where it's an adult asking questions of a child, and they don't know effectively what the system um, requires of them, and they want to get, give the right answer. Things to consider go through all these, age and maturity of the child, fluency, coherence. I give lots of examples in the paper that you'll get at the point I finish the lecture. I shan't go into the details here for the reasons I have said, but essentially it's looking at what's going on in the child's life at the point they make the allegation and what has gone on at the time they say whatever happened did happen in their lives. The police interview, um, we come here to the most critical stage in looking at these cases, which is the ABE interview, Achieving Best Evidence. It is the first time in reality where there is, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, where there is the least filter 
in understanding what the child is saying because these interviews are video recorded so that the process of questioning can be understood by those who come to watch it later on. It should be conducted by qualified police officers, assisted by qualified social workers, and there should be a process of preparation of the child and a process of preparation, more importantly, by those who are about to conduct the investigation. Because if they conduct it poorly, it can contaminate the evidence for the entirety of the investigation. If they conduct it well, the court has the best quality material available to analyse and to form a view about the credibility of the child's allegations. It is the most significant potentially piece of evidence the judge will ever see because it's the first time you get to see the child talking about what may or may not have happened as opposed to being told by others what the child has said. So there are very, very clear guidelines about what to do, and they cover things like the initial interview before it goes on record. It covers the conduct of the interview itself, and it goes into detail about the stages that the interview should be conducted in. And again, time prohibits me from going through each of those, but um, there needs to be a process of establishing rapport, understanding if the child knows what the difference between a truth and a lie is, giving a child for the child to say what has happened in their own words without prompting. It's called free recall before questioning is asked, non-leading questions, and then finally closing the interview, clarifying things and um, ending it. Um, I've put this case up on slide and it's quoted at some length in the paper that you'll find outside. Because what happens in the cases I'm afraid I tend to come across is examples where the questioning has gone wrong and where in this particular case, the approach of the investigators was effectively to get the child to repeat what they had already said. Well, that doesn't tell you if what the child has said was correct. Repeating an account, I may say I bought a ham sandwich yesterday, and I'll say it again to you today, it doesn't mean to say that I actually bought a ham sandwich. So repeating an allegation doesn't help. It's the quality of the material of the allegation itself, which is, should be at the heart of the interview. Evidence from the child directly. Now, so far, I've spoken to you about sources coming from outside of the child. So what the child may have said to a teacher, what the child may have said to another child, what it may have said to a parent. Why don't we have more children in court giving their account directly, as we do in the criminal courts? It's a valid question. There's no reason per se. A case re-W, now 2010, specifically looked at whether or not the family court was inappropriately stopping the child from having a voice because we were over-protectionist about the child, thinking it couldn't cope, thinking it wasn't right and wasn't appropriate. And what Re.W. did, which is a critical decision, is it said you shouldn't, there shouldn't be any presumption against a child giving evidence. But what you should do is properly look at the advantages that giving oral evidence might bring to the case or the damage it might do to the child's welfare, and you balance those two elements, looking at lots of minutiae, what's the child's maturity, what can they understand about it, can they be supported. But at the end of the day, there's no presumption to say no and there's no presumption to say yes. The only presumption is the court will do that which is required to make the trial fair. So why is it, therefore that we don't have any more children giving evidence. And again, Court of Appeal case 2016, question posed by them, which is how is it that in criminal proceedings about 40,000 children give evidence each year? And that can be down to three. And I think we'll know of some cases where it's happened even younger than that. And yet in the family division, family court case, courts, very rare. I asked more than I did before because now I'm not going to be immediately hounded if I say so, because I am you know, the epitome of evil by suggesting a child should go into the witness box, but I don't get them granted any more frequently than I did. But the uh, process is there to be undertaken. What about retractions? Does that mean that the whole slate is wiped clean? Daddy didn't do it. Mummy wasn't there. I lied. The answer is no, a retraction doesn't automatically wipe out the past. You need to understand why the retraction has been made. Children, if they made an allegation, may retract for a number of reasons. They may retract because, in fact, it was wrong and it's a lie. They might also retract because, in fact, they don't like being in foster care and dangerous, though some parts of being at home was, they'd much rather be at home than in foster care. They might retract because, in fact, they're very scared about what's happened to their family. They might retract because they are worried that the person they've identified might go to prison. There are lots of reasons for retraction, which is why once it happens, 
it doesn't automatically bring to an end the concern that came, that brought the matter to the court in the first place. But it's part of the broad canvas. It's important to know what's happened and if it's right. So, when it all goes wrong, why is that? Um, I think if I'm trying to pull it together, there's a number of strands. Basically, investigators proceed on the basis the child must be believed. They fail to absorb the guidance through the ABE. They make mistakes in what they believe and what they record, and that contaminates the material. The word disclosure, despite the fact that since Cleveland has been denigrated as a term of description, is still in common use, not just in the cases I do by social workers and police, but even as in the last week on the web, an example by the NSPCC that is seeking assistance on one of its reviews. They have, good, they have reasons which they say are good for using it, but the point is that that word has got so many dangers attached to it. It would be good if social workers and police officers realise that that is not a term to use because of the value system it implies behind it. Common mistakes, again, using untrained, uh, inexperienced interviewers, too many interviews for the child, interviews conducted at the adult's pace, not the child's pace, lack of background information, telling the child what another child has said, so feeding information into the child, lots of reasons. But they are all avoidable, and they're all avoidable if the people doing the questioning are trained and alert and have an open mind. And when I say leading questions are a problem, what do I mean? I mean these type of things. Did anything happen yesterday that made you sad? Don't be shy. It's really important that you tell us. What if there is nothing important that's happened? What did daddy do to you? Which implies daddy has done something. Can you tell us what you told mummy? I repeat what you've told someone else, not what the act was that allegedly you have said. X said you said this, those type of examples. And why am I able to say that they are wrong to be used? Well, one, because the guidance tells me, Cleveland told me, ABE told me, case law tells me, experience tells me, but also because one of our bright young sparks, um, Alastair MacDonald J, one of the youngest, I think he was the youngest man um, appointed to the family division, turned 48, I think, last week, which makes me feel very old. Um, he has delivered one of the most useful judgments that you would ever come across in AS and TH, where he identified in a private law case that they heard over nine days um, where the mistakes had been made, and they were voluminous. So would you really believe that as recently as last year, it will be thought right by any professional or body of professionals to question children no fewer than 66 times by 19 groups? Isn't that abusive in itself? What about having therapy with the children on the basis that abuse has happened before a court has ever found that it has done? How is a child, if it's not been abused, going to resist that type of pressure through therapy? And what else is that word disclosure again? Um, as he paused to note in his judgment, despite the fact that the use of the term disclosure has been deprecated since Cleveland, due to it precluding the notion that the abuse might not have occurred, every professional, and this judge heard from a whole raft of professionals, every professional came out with it bar the Guardian. What else did he have to show us? That case talks to us about proper recording of what the child has said. It talks about proper preparation. And most importantly, I think, it talks about the tension, which is the heart of this lecture. Throughout the initial phase of the assessment and preliminary decision-making, social workers should be conscious of the fact that the presumption that abuse has taken place can have damaging repercussions for the child and the family. Equally, an abnormally low level of alertness to the possibility of child sex abuse may deter children from subsequently trusting adults sufficiently to reveal the fact of abuse to them. Because if they tell someone and that someone doesn't take it seriously, and it doesn't lead to investigation, and they go back to where the abuse is happening, how can they trust again to say more? So that shows you about the tension there is to try to get this thing right. Another case, Wolverhampton City Council, 2017, and I pause to say here in the lecture notes and in this talk, I've tried to give you the most up-to-date law, because I wanted to show you that mistakes are still happening and how they can be avoided. 
In this case, um, we have Key and Jay dealing with a case which involved two um, adolescents, 13 um, and 12, made allegations um, in relation to their family abuse. And he had cause, I'm afraid, to make criticism of the children's solicitor, Amos Noel, who had 11 years' experience as a solicitor, six on the children's panel. But nonetheless, despite she and The Guardian being asked to go along to talk to the child about re-W issues, so exploring whether they could or couldn't give evidence, Miss Noel proceeded effectively to cross-examine the child about the allegations. She so transgressed her professional role that she attracted this criticism, which I've rarely seen in a judgment about what she did. She inappropriately questioned. She questioned for a long time. She cross-examined. Um, she asked leading questions. She, as we now find on the next slide, she, in effect, ran a coach and horses through 20 years plus of child abuse inquiries. More importantly, as the judge found, she had absolutely no sense of what she'd done wrong, even in the witness box. And that goes to show how important training is, because I'm sure she was a good, kind, caring professional who wanted to do the best. But she walked and trampled through the evidence and caused harm as she did so to the child who should have been the subject of her protective um, legal advice and care. And that is simply not acceptable. So where are we now? There's uh, other cases I can give you, but I think I'll probably exhaust your attention span if I go through. I just really would like to end on a couple of points. The first, I needed to give you something to smile about, but it's really grim, so don't think this is going to be a light-hearted moment, but in, talk, in terms of telling you how many mistakes are still being made, I want to point out that the people that do this work do this work because they actually care about the children who are the subject of proceedings. And those people who come before the court who are the professionals who have to look at these images day in, day out, perform a task that is exceptional and very few of us will want to do. And the professionalism of those who want to act for children and want to act for parents and who want to become judges to make these decisions are, I think, some of the best people that we can commend in our society. So I think that's got to be said and acknowledged because I don't want to focus on the mistakes without indicating the number of times in which the judge and the courts have come in to step in to intervene to protect a child so they do have a chance to go on and have a quality of life that they deserve and they can go on to have children to bring them up in the way that they weren't allowed the chance to do so. And that's why we do the job. So I wanted to make sure that in terms of identifying the flaws, it wasn't identifying to you why I say them. And it's because we should all strive to do better. We are doing a lot better. We're certainly doing a lot better than France. Anyone see this in the paper last week? I mean, I, I was just blown away with shock. A French girl 11 is apparently not a child when it comes to sexual abuse. Apparently, the French law doesn't have the lowest, the low age, age of consent, an age below which a minor can't um, agree to a sexual relationship. I don't think that can be right. But this is a slide I put together last night, and no doubt someone will tell me. But how can it possibly be that those acting for the 29-year-old accused said that the child was 11 years and 10 months old, so nearly 12? It changes the story she is not a child. How could they possibly think it right to say, we're not dealing with a sexual predator on a poor little faultless goose? Now, we are doing so much better than that in the United Kingdom, because just the look of shock on your faces as that came up on screen makes me realise how far we have moved in terms of understanding what is right and what is wrong. So are we nearly there yet? In that phrase that you hear too often, I think we are getting there. I think we are making progress, and I think there is more to do. Parting words, you must approach these cases with an open mind. And that means both those who are the victims and those who have been the victims and then become those who come back in front of you. Again, wasn't quite sure whether this was or wasn't right to say, but I will do. One of the cases that I have dealt with 
was one of those which, which is etched and scarred on my memory of acting for a 14-year-old boy who was in a family where there was a horrific sexual abuse. And he came to the attention of the local authority for good reasons, which I shan't share with you. But the point was that he denied that he had been a victim of abuse because of loyalty to his mother, who was the abuser, as well as the other family relatives, aunts and uncles, as well as male members of the family. And the only time he felt able to tell us that something had happened was when his youngest sibling, his sister, his favourite one, said he had done something to her. And that's when he realised he had to say, because it was right, that was what he had done, but he had done to her that which had been done to him for decades, and he didn't know where the line was to stop, and he had no one to assist him, and it became part of what he was experienced. So do not judge people, because you simply do not know what they have experienced in their lives to lead them to behave in the way they have, nor does it mean there's not the capacity to change. But that is why you need to change and intervene at the point where you've got the best option for achieving a positive outcome in a child's life. So final words. Um, if we make mistakes in the investigation that we undertake in courts, they have massive consequences because they can trample over good quality evidence that might indicate a child has been abused. And in their desire to prove that something has happened, they effectively trample upon the evidence that might persuade the court that it had done. If they make mistakes the other way and they form judgments that a child has been abused, as, for example, those cases I brought to your attention, and they wrongly find that a child has been abused, just imagine the devastation that causes within the family of being wrongly accused of sexual abuse when you know you haven't done it. And when I say that your denials after a judge has made a finding count for nothing, because the judge has made a decision. So the responsibility to get it right is absolutely enormous. And that is why the best training needs to be facilitated, the best understanding of sexual abuse in the community needs to be facilitated. And it's also why, if children are being exposed to what they are in this modern currency, it's also why there's no, I think, early age as there might have been in terms of protecting them in terms of information being given to them in a positive way about what is safe and unsafe. Because we have very little control now, or certainly less than we did, over what our children are exposed to. And abuse doesn't have to happen within the home. Abuse can happen through the internet. It can happen by strangers. And we, as adults, lag behind our children's understanding about the web, what the web is. So it's a, it's a problem which we need to grapple with and we need to understand, and that for no other reason of which there are many. I just wanted to say thank you very much indeed for being here to listen to this. Thank you to those that are listening to it on the web and thank you to those that take time to read the lecture. Because if you are here, it means there are more people that aren't turning away from a very, very difficult subject. And I think that's got to be to the good of the children that need to be protected from it. So thank you very much indeed.